Good evening. This is the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. This is a special special intro. I always like to give my audience a promise. This is a safe space. This is an entertaining space. Everyone is welcome. You're going to come and join the party. Because tonight, we're going to talk about... Well, he is an icon. He's been gone for over 21 years, but we're still listening to the music and we're still watching the films. And he was born today, 79 years ago, in Liverpool. And we're talking about George Harrison, guitarist, Beatle, singer, songwriter, film producer. Paid the highest ticket ever for a film, and that was... Monty Python, he mortgaged his house just so the film would get made. And of course, he gave us that extraordinary double album, All Things Must Pass. I was raised on the Beatles, so this is very close to home for me. I've known many, many people throughout the years who all loved George. George Harrison was their Beatle. Everyone, you know, you, you either you love John Lennon or you love Paul McCartney or you loved Ringo or you loved George. And when they were all together, that music that they made reverberated and it continues to reverberate. People can make fun of you for say, listening to the Beatles. Oh, that's classic stuff. That's old stuff. It is so timeless. And even the solo albums, but in particular, George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. So this is the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Stay tuned as we just celebrate George Harrison on what would have been his 79th birthday. Stay tuned. Think of yourselves now. 
the same way as I've always thought, you know. And how's that? Well, you know, all this, the success sort of hasn't meant really much more. I mean, we, we haven't gone potty thinking we're great and all that. And, uh, you know, we just still enjoy it as much as we did when we were earning 10 bob a week each. And uh, thank you. Thanks very much, George. Hello. Welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. This right here. The gentleman that we're going to talk about knows a thing or knew a thing or two about film and music. He financed films, he produced films, he did the soundtrack, but he was also the member of the Beatles. And the Beatles tell the story, and I'm gonna play it for a bit, of why he really joined the band. Because yes, you have these the two songwriters that everyone thought were the leads, Lennon and McCarthy, McCartney. And then you have George Harrison, who is the youngest of the Beatles. And this is interesting because the youngest of the Beatles will be would have been 80 in 2023. Today is his 79th birthday. Born George Harrison. February 25th, 1943, in Liverpool, England. He died on November 29th, 2001, 21 years ago. What's funny about that interview is as he talks about taxes, this, of course, is a year, a year before they put out Tax Man. <laughs> what makes George Harrison so unique, whenever you have a band such as the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. Of course, you know, very rarely is there going to be a solo thing. What happened was the Beatles broke up. Everyone knows it is it's it's that story that's get it gets told so many different times or so many different reasons why they broke up. Yes, being in a band is like being in a marriage. And they had been in that marriage for a decade. And so what do you what do you do when it's, it's just not working anymore? You go your separate ways out of and and still maintain that respect and love and admiration of one another because even during the solo solo years they would all still work together like George would go work with John Ringo would go work with John or with Paul I mean it was you know, even even decades later, after John Lennon's murder, they came together um, and recorded uh, "Free as a Bird" for uh, the anthology series. But it was George, George, who really, George had you know. There's been so much placed on him. Okay, he was a sensitive beetle. At heart, he was really funny, and he was really goofy. And but you know, when you're in a band called the Beatles, people were like, "Okay, you know, it, it, people have their favorites. Some people like John, some people like Paul, some people like Ringo, some people like George." And 
there was a really great documentary about George Harrison called Living in a Material World, directed by Martin Scorsese, and it was through the Harrison family, Olivia and Danny Harrison, his wife and, and son, that they were able to compile all of this footage and assemble, you know, everyone from John, or sorry, uh, archival footage of John and Paul and Ringo. Now, Paul tells a very interesting story of how George really joined the Beatles. And then from there, we're going to go, we're just going to jump into him stockpiling these songs. John and I play a bit of guitar, but we couldn't really solo. We weren't that good. And I said, I know this guy. He's a bit young, but he's good. Uh, John said, well, you know, let's meet him. He's come on. So I, I said to George, you want to go meet these guys? I'm in a group with, you know. So yeah. So he brought his guitar, and we were on the top deck of a double-decker bus in Liverpool, around where John lived, a place called Wilton. And nobody was on the bus late at night. And uh, John said, well, come on, let's see you play to George. I said, go on, go on, get your guitar out. So George unpacked his guitar, got it out, and he played this thing called Raunchy, which was... Yeah. That's what happened. That's how it all came together. Nowadays, when people start a band, oh, it's either through management or, or the boy bands. It's like, oh, these three will look good together. Central casting. But with the Beatles, they had all been touched by music. You know, John Lennon had seen Elvis, Buddy Holly, and was like, oh, my and Paul McCartney saw Little Richard, Elvis, uh, the Everly Brothers, and even John. And were like, oh my God, I want to do that. And they started the Quarrymen. And then became the Beatles. And they had other, you know, other members in the band. But it was their love of rock and roll and blues and R&B that really helped to further this desire and determination to start a band and what's interesting is even Little Richard Little Richard someone who they all looked up to you know and they did their their covers of Tutti Frutti and um Little they 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 hung out with Little Richard in Liverpool so that at that point getting to meet your heroes they got to meet Elvis that was interesting. But tonight, we're going to talk about George Harrison. George Harrison, so many different taglines. The sensitive beetle, the quiet beetle. <laughs> but you know what? He was the beetle, I think, that no, no one in their right mind, because you've got to remember, I think he was getting one to two songs 
on each Beatles album from Taxman, I'd Be Lovely to Dance with You, Within You, Without You. I mean, these are just some of the ones that I'm naming. Uh, Blue Jay, Blue Jay Way, which is such an iconic song. It's been covered by so many people. And of course, while my guitar, guitar gently weeps, Eric Clapton's playing on that. Here comes the sun. Something. And so each album he's getting, you know, so many songs in. And he starts to stockpile songs. So that when the Beatles broke up, each Beatle, you know, okay, I'm going to do a solo album. Paul's going to do a solo album. John's going to do Ringo. And then everyone waits. And then... This is where don't count him as the quiet beetle because on November 27, 1970, okay, George Harrison released the double, not just one album, two albums together, the double album, All Things Must Pass. So remember, Paul did the first album where he plays all the instruments. John does his solo album. Him and Yoko Ono does do stuff. Ringo does his album. And then George, who's been stockpiling these songs for decades, puts out the double album, the mega album. I don't think any of them saw that coming. You know, they supported John. I mean, George. They supported his growth as an artist. And yet, this out, al- this is, this is, ooh. It was uh, Harrison's first solo work after the breakup of the Beatles. In April that year, it includes the hits, singles, My Sweet Lord, What Is Life, as well as Isn't It a Pity, and All Things Must Pass. Yep. Was nominated for Grammys, Record of the Year, Album of the Year. But... <laughs> That was the year of tapestry and tapestry. And then Phil Spector, you know, I don't think George wanted Phil to produce it. And because, <laughs> you know, Phil, Phil Spector had a reputation. He had a reputation and I, I can understand why. And so, you know, and, and think of all the people that played on All Things Must Pass. Peter Frampton. Eric Clapton and and the you know the the finished product itself although Harrison had uh, estimated in a New York radio interview that the solo album would take more no more than eight weeks to complete recording overdubbing and mixing on all things lasted for five months until late October part of the reason for this was Harrison's need to make regular visits to Liverpool to tend to his mother who had been diagnosed with cancer. Spectre's erratic behavior during the sessions was another factor affecting progress on the album. Harrison later referred to Spectre needing 18 cherry brandies before he could start work, a situation that forced much of the production duties onto Harrison alone. At one point, Spectre fell over in the studio and broke his arm. Oh, God. He subsequently withdrew from the project due to that what uh manger and easter term health reasons okay 
and it was costly. <sighs> See what I mean with Phil? <laughs> See what happens? And the release, so... Okay. My, my Sweet Lord was highly successful, topping singles charts around the world draw, during the few uh, first months of 1971. It was the first solo single by a former Beatle to be number one in the UK and the US. All Things Must Pass was number one on the UK's official album charts for 18 weeks. And then in the US, All Things Must Pass spent seven weeks at number one in the United States. Yep. The extent of Harrison's success surprised the music industry and largely overshadowed Lona, uh, Lennon's cons concurrently released Plastic Ono Band album, which Spectre also co-produced. Writing in the 2001 issue of The Record Collector, um, Peter Doggett described Harrison as arguably the most successful rock star on the planet at the start of 1971 with All Things Must Pass, easily outstripping other solo Beatles projects later in the year, such as McCartney, McCartney's Ram, Lennon's Imagine, Harrison's so-called Billboard Double, whereby one artist simultaneously holds the top positions on the Billboard's albums and singles charts, was a feat that none of his former bandmates equaled until Paul McCartney and Wings repeated the achievement in June 1973. <sighs> At the 1972 Grammy Awards, All Things Must Pass was nominated for Album of the Year and My Sweet Lord was for Record of the Year, but lost both in categories to Carole King. So that's the beginning of the solo album. And and we've all, every, everyone's, that it's an it's iconic solo album. All things must pass. It's George Harrison surrounded by gnomes. <laughs> and if you don't get the humor of that, okay. Yeah. So now we're going to go. So the film, because, you know, this is a film podcast also. I don't just talk about music. And George Harrison, the filmmaker... I love saying that because that's what happened. And he, and you know, the fact that in that interview I played where he says, I don't think we'll be millionaires. Well, <laughs> it ended up happening. That's the thing when you're, when you're just starting out like that, you, you're not thinking about that. You're in the moment, which they were now artists I wouldn't even call today's musicians musicians or artists. They're really thinking about the money. Where the Beatles were like, we just want to perform. They wanted chicks and they wanted to perform. That's that's really what happened. Now, the filmmaker and Ellen, let's let's not forget the concert of Bangladesh. Let's not I I, I almost oh god, slap me for that. Harrison um, responded to a request from Ravi Shankar by organizing a charity event, the Concert for Bangladesh, which took place on August 1st, 1971. 
The event drew over 40,000 people to two shows in New York's Madison Square Garden. The goal of the event was to raise money to aid starving refugees during the Bangladesh Liberation War. Shankar opened the show, which featured popular musicians such as Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, Leon Russell, Badfinger, Preston, and Starr. A triple album, The Concert for Bangladesh, was released by Apple in December, followed by a concert film in 1972, credited to George Harrison and friends. The album topped the UK chart and peaked at number two in the US and went on to win the Grammy for Album of the Year. Tax troubles and questionable expenses later tied up many of the proceeds, but Harrison uh, commented, mainly the concert was to attract attention to the situation. The money was raised secondarily, and although we had some money problems, they still got plenty. Even though it was the drop in the ocean, the main thing was we spread the word and helped get the war ended. And I bring that up because we, you know, what's going on right now, and you have many refugees who are fleeing, who don't want to leave their country, but in wartime, they're leaving the country. Oh my god. There's so much there's so much on George Harrison. From the guitars, from he loved ukuleles, his friendships. He oh he befriended a lot of musicians. Here we go. Harrison helped finance Ravi Shankar's documentary Raga and released it through Apple Films in 1971. He also produced, with Apple manager Alan Klein, the concert for Bangladesh film. In 1973, he produced the feature film Little Malcolm, but the project was lost amid the litigation surrounding the former Beatles ending their business ties with Klein. In 1973, Peter Sellers introduced Harrison to Dennis O'Brien. Soon after, the two went into business together. In 1978, to produce Monty Python's Life of Brian. They formed the film production and distribution company Handmade Films. Their opportunity for investment came after EMI Films withdrew funding at the demand of their chief executive, Bernard Delfont. Harrison financed the production of Life of Brian in part by mortgaging his home, which Idol later called the the most anybody's ever paid for a cinema ticket in history. The film grossed $21 million in the box office in the U.S. The first film distributed by Handmade Films was The Long Good Friday in 1980. And first produced by... Th- and, the first, uh, and the first they produced was Time Bandits. Time Bandits is such a classic and, and Good Friday. A co-scripted project by Monty Python's Terry Gillian and Michael Palin. The film featured a new song by Harrison, Dream Away. In the closing credits, Time Bandits became one of Handmaid's most successful and acclaimed efforts. With a budget of $5 million, it earned $35 million in the U.S. within 10 weeks of release. Harrison served as executive producer for 23 films with Handmaid Productions, including A Private Function, Mona Lisa, Shanghai Surprise, With Nail and I, How to Get Ahead in Advertising. He made cameo appearances in several of these films, including a role as a nightclub singer in Shanghai Surprise, for which he recorded five new songs. According to Ian Inglis, Harrison's executive role in handmade films helped to sustain British cinema at the time of the crisis. 
producing some of the country's most memorable movies of the 1980s. Following a series of box office bombs in the late 1980s, an excessive debt incurred by O'Brien, which was guaranteed by Harrison, Handmaid's financial situation became precarious. The company ceased operations in 1991 and sold there three years later to Paragon Entertainment, a Canadian corporation. Afterwards, Harrison sued O'Brien for $25 million for fraud and negligence, resulting in an $11.6 million judgment in 1996. Oh, this is... He worked for UNICEF. George Harrison was one of those artists, and we have to talk about <coughs> the Hinduism, because that was an integral part of who George was from the time he started to study, from the time he died, because he prepared for his death for, was it, I think, 29 years? Okay. the Hare Krishna I'm reading a lot of this okay yeah I saw an interview he he did or was that a voice interview they were doing the Beatles documentary in 2000 and you can hear George Harrison saying you know fame was not the goal fame was not the answer because he wanted something beyond fame and that's what led him to his spiritualism and led him to study Indian um, philosophy and, and spiritualism and, and Hinduism and uh, the Hare Krishna and according to his wife Olivia Harrison the night that George Harrison died and he died of brain cancer the room glowed because he had been preparing for this for oh, over two decades and To, to be a, a student of that that says something about George Harrison because his his life you know he that first interview I played he didn't intend to be famous just didn't and look where it took him and I wanted to find you know everyone's talked about Monty Python and the members of Monty Python a year after George Harrison had died came together with Eric Clapton and Paul McCartney and Danny Harrison and, and Jeff Lynn of ELO to do a concert for George it was, it was a very beautiful beautiful thing and <laughs> life of Brian oh my god I want I want to give a nod to um, a former co-worker and a friend of mine who died 
five, oh geez, was it five years ago? Was it five years? Yeah, five years ago. Richard Hunt. Richard Hunt loved Monty Python. We would have these discuss because I'd never watched Monty Python. And he's like, you have to watch The Life of Brian. And I'm like, okay. And this is this is Eric Idle talking about working with George Harrison and the Monty Python connection. He had this ability to, to bottom line everything by pulling focus and showing you the cosmic world of this galaxy. And, and there you were suddenly just this little person with his own little problems fretting away on the surface. So... I had heard a little about George liking Python, and I've been a bit wary. Did you? I don't want to know about somebody famous, and, you know. Uh, but we had the screening of the Holy Grail, and it went really well. And suddenly there he was. Going, oh, this is fucking great. Come on. And he said, let's go upstairs. And then we started a dialogue, which went on for about 48 hours. It was extraordinary. I mean, it was like... Well, George was uh, very fond of Russell Weekend Television. On Russell Weekend Television, we did a, a, a center for the Russells. It was like a hard day's rut. We were on Abbey Road filming, and I'm dressed as uh, Paul, in, and then Neil is dressed as, as Ron, as, as John, with a huge big beard and time. And we're there, we're on Abbey Road, and these people say, ah, you're the Beatles, you're the Beatles. It's like 20 years later, you what, you think they're still here, you know? And then, but George is standing with us, and they don't recognize him. He's laughing his ass off, because we're getting, we're getting signed autographs, and they don't notice it's George. Existence is kind of funny, because of our temporality. It's all, here we go, around pretending to be kings and emperors, and you're going to die. You're in a box in a minute or two, you know? So... We are constantly undercut by our own physicalities, our own physical bodies, which let us down. And you find all these evangelicals, and suddenly they're having gay sex in Aspen. Oh, this body's letting me down all the time. You know, it's like, that's what makes us funny. George is grounding in what was both true and what was, he would test things by what made him laugh or what was, what was close to his heart. I've always been surprised that Python has proven to be as long living as it has because we were just having fun just like they were having fun we were entertaining ourselves we weren't actually thinking about the audience it's like john lennon said you know you're still fucking peasants to me you know certain things there was a kind of arrogance there that you're not out there to you know want to be loved so desperately that you'll do anything it's about maintaining your own integrity and your own view of the world whatever that is and trying to be truthful We'd written Life of Brian. We had EMI um, putting up the money for the movie. We had designed it. We were heading out on the Saturday with the crew to Tunisia to start filming. And on Thursday, we get a call. And Lord Delphont Burney, to his friends, had finally come and got around to reading the script, apparently. He hadn't read it before. And he was shocked and horrified. And he said, there's no way EMI is going to be involved in this blasphemous you know, filth. On the Thursday, and we were we were dead. And I'll be calling into George. He says, "No, no, I'll take this." And I thought, "Yeah, yeah." And all the time he says, "No, no, I'll take care of it." And I thought, "Yeah." We were looking for four million dollars. I thought nobody has that amount of money, you know. But eventually, when we finally got to California, George says, "Yeah, I figured it out. We're going to create 
you know, a, a company, and we're, we're going to give you the money. And it's $4 million, and he mortgaged his house to, to put up the money for this movie um, because he wanted to see it, which is still the most anybody's ever paid for a cinema ticket. Thank God. <laughs> Controversy. Controversy when you're a filmmaker and when it comes to the big book and and no disrespect for yeah, yeah I wasn't raised religious so that's why when I when when I tell some people that I've watched the life of Brian they kind of scoff it's like oh it's blasphemy okay <laughs> yeah yeah um but that's the most that anyone's ever paid for a, for a movie ticket. And that is a testament to that friendship. Eric Heidel and, and John Cleese, all of Monty Python, they loved. They loved George. They really did. And <laughs> it's, I love Monty Python. I really do. I love what they were able to do and the hilarity of everything. They even, they even, you know, they were the Ruddles. They were, they were this, this mock version of the Beatles as uh, Sergeant Pepper, you know, the Lonely Hearts Club band. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I want to take a moment and just talk about that and these friendships that George established. And one of them also musically was Jeff Lynne. Jeff Lynne of the Electric Light Orchestra, ELO. I mean, come on. I, I want to give a shout out to my friend Julie who loves ELO because they were able to take rock but then mix it with orchestration okay from oh god one of my favorites is uh uh what is it strange magic Ooh. uh what's the other one um evil woman oh yeah and then uh don't uh don't bring me down those are classics and jeff lynn went on to work with the surviving Beatles. He produced Paul McCartney's albums. He produced Ringo's albums. He produced George's albums. He produced Tom Petty's albums. <sighs> you know, George Harrison. I mean, you, you think of all these people that came together for the documentary Living in the Material World. Uh, you've got. Ringo crying, and he's like, it's like Barbara fucking Walters. <laughs> um, I mean, this is this is a long list of people who cared about George. From Tom Petty, Billy Preston, um, Yoko Ono, his son Dan Danny Harrison, his siblings. Um, Um, 
After Harrison's death in 2001, various production companies approached his widow, Olivia, about producing a film about her late husband's life. She declined because he had wanted to tell his own story through his video archive. Upon meeting Scorsese, she gave her blessings and signed on to the film project as a producer. According to Scorsese, he was attracted to the project because that subject matter has never left me. The more you're in the material world, the more there is a tendency for a search of serenity and a need not to be distracted by physical elements that are around you. His music is very important to me, so I was interested in the journey that he took as an artist. The film is an exploration. We don't know. We're just feeling our way through. Yep. Throughout 2008-2009, Scorsese alternated working between Shutter Island and the documentary. Scorsese, his editor David Tedeschi, and a small army of researchers spent five years assembling interviews, music clips, film clips, photos, and memorabilia. The documentary premiered on the Foundation for Art and Creative Technology in Liverpool on October 2nd, 2011. It was shown on HBO in two parts on the 5th and 6th of October 2011 in the United States and in Canada. Yep. Because you've got to have a two-parter when it's George Harrison. Think about that. Think about it. The, the, the... The first Beatle, former Beatle, to put out a double album, solo album. So it's only fitting that they give us a, a double documentary. I, I love the documentary. It's, it's one of those moments where you watch it and you're just taken back by everything that he accomplished in the time that he was here. And <laughs> oh, he was a prankster. Oh, I'm looking at <laughs> Monty Python sit on my face. <laughs> oh, yes. And see, that's why that's why we love these stories. We love these stories. We love hearing about them. I love Time Bandits. I really, really do. I did a show about Time Bandits. And... That's such a moment. I remember watching that when I was a kid. And I was studying the Titanic. And, you know, that kind of got me. That's, they end up on the Titanic. And then they're all like... How the hell did I know it was going to crash into an iceberg? <laughs> And then, and then the guest stars in Time Bandits. So that's why I wanted I, when I I knew it was his birthday coming up. I didn't realize that he would he's he would have been close to eighty, and I knew that he had this extensive work in film. I knew that he had produced Shanghai, uh, Shanghai uh, Surprise. It, it was not. It was not a hit. Oh, it was not a hit. It, well, it starred Madonna, who can't really act, and and Sean Penn. So, um, 
This is this is I, I thought let's do this. This is the story of Time Bandits. This is really his best along with Life of Brian.
uh, can actually make films for that amount of money, and that would be a cheap film for him. I like working with tight budgets because they force you. Uh, why are you looking like that at me? Why are you looking when we're sitting in front of a forty-five million dollar film? <laughs> why? Uh, up till this moment in time, I was known for making films cheaply. <laughs> to get into situations where we could um, sort of edit the screenplay rather than shoot all the screenplay and then edit the film and chuck maybe half a million pounds worth of footage on the floor. And uh, we had a few rows with Terry, but um, very small compared to the trouble he's had with recent films. Oh, Terry Gilliam falls out with almost everyone he's ever met and doesn't speak to them for three years, you know. This is part of Terry's life. It's sort of a deep pattern, which I think it would take him many years to cure. Terry was never satisfied with anything. He just made a $45 million film and he's still complaining. <laughs> he didn't have enough money. <laughs> he's just a silly old bitch. I mean, <laughs> he's very sweet. I took him out for dinner last night. I paid, of course. It's like a little American kid. <laughs> At the end of the film, I'm a crazed person. And film is my child and I'm his mother badger and everybody is a threat to it and there was a point where I threatened to burn the negative I had reached breaking point and I said if you're gonna insist on those cuts I'm destroying the whole thing I made it I can destroy it goodbye <laughs> And that's the story of Time Bandits, the cast, the crew, George Harrison. It's a classic. And that's where I wanted to go with this, is to just not talk about only the music, but... To talk about how they made these films. <laughs> That's him briefly in uh, Life of Brian. <laughs> um, what a 
what an extraordinary career. What an extraordinary life. And I think we'll end it with Ringo. Weeks of George's life, he was in Switzerland, and I went to see him, and he was very ill, and he, you know, he could only lay down. Um, and while he was being ill, and I'd come to see him, I was going to uh, Boston because my daughter had a brain tumor, and I said, "Well, you know, I've got to go. I've got to go to Boston," and he goes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last words I heard him say, actually. And he said, uh, "Do you want me to come with you?" <laughs> and, oh God! So you know that's the incredible side of George. God, it's like Barbara fucking Walters here, isn't it? <laughs> and those are George's many friends. And George had a musical band long after the Beatles, and that was the Traveling Wilburys. What a super group. What an extraordinary super group. And at the helm of that was his friend, Tom Petty. Along with Tom Petty, George formed the Traveling Wilburys in 1987. George Harrison, Tom Petty, Jeff Lynne, Bob Dylan, and Roy, Roy Orbison. The first album comes out, it's a hit. And then Roy dies. And so they carry on. Carried on. I think they did another album together. Um, what an extraordinary group, though. Think, think about the songwriters and and the different personalities. You've got Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, Tom Petty, Jeff Lynne, 
George Harrison. And each one of them contributing musically. There, there was no leader in this band. You know, each one, you know, Bob is singing. Bob's got that voice. Say what you will about Bob Dylan. I've always loved Bob Dylan's voice. It's familiar. It's real. And then Roy Orbison. Roy Orbison, who was so known for his high voice. And then you've got Tom Petty, who's just got that, I mean, American rock and roll. And you've got Jeff Lynne, ELO, you know, and then George Harrison. And the way they just sounded together, it was just extraordinary. And... George Harrison was inducted with the Beatles in 1988 into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And then he was inducted posthumously in 2004 in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That was a legendary moment because there was that that jam session where Prince and Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne were all doing While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And Prince did that solo. We can't play that solo. Here's Olivia Harrison. Sometimes people say, you know, what was the, uh, what's the secret of a long marriage? It's like, you don't get divorced. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, you go through challenges in your marriage. And I, here's what I found. First time we had a big hiccup in the road, I, I, I you know, you go through things, you go, wow. There is a reward at the other end of it. There's this incredible reward. You love each other more. You learn something. You let go of something. You get you get those hard edges get softened. You know, you, you're that block of stone. And, you know, life shapes you and takes away those hard edges. And that's Olivia Harrison who was, I believe, his second wife because he had been previously married to Patty Boyd. We're not going to go into that. Everyone knows about Patty Boyd and you know, all this other stuff. And, um, yeah. And, uh, I don't know if someone, who was it? One of his friends, probably was Tom Petty or someone, made that comment, oh, you me- married a Mexican girl because... Olivia Harrison, uh, I believe, was a Mexican American. You know, the keeper of of the flame. You know, this this legacy. Um, that has just continued, and um. Because you know, I want I want everyone who was important to him to appear in this this podcast. And one of them, probably the most important, was his son, Danny Harrison. Danny Harrison, who looks exactly like his father. He looks I mean some some are, you know, the spitting image of their parents. 
I mean, you look at Julian Lennon. Julian Lennon looks and sounds like John Lennon. <sighs> but Danny Harrison looks exactly like George. And um, sounds like him. I mean, it, you know, the, the, the genes... Um, genes continue. This is him talking to Conan O'Brien about preserving his father's legacy. Um, I wanted to find the clip from the film, but I can't find it. Where they're all talking about you know, like he had a dream about him and he said to him in the documentary, where have you been? And uh, he didn't answer and uh, here we go.
I'm such a huge fan of your dad's and of his work, and you let me hold his guitars, and one of the just a transformative experience for me. You're just a very generous soul. Well, it was a good thank you, man. It was a really good day, because uh, we were just there working away, Paulius uh, and I, actually Paul, who remastered these uh, records that we played, and, um, and uh, you know, we knew we were going to be in England, so we thought, come down and have a, have a nice day, because it's, you can't really say, oh, well, it's kind of like this, it's kind of like that. You just no, no, it's come, absolutely amazing. Come and see for yourself um, yeah and when you grab a guitar off the wall and say look it's the 12 string Rickenbacker from Hardy's Night Catch <laughs> like, ah! Ah! that's like ah! don't look at it don't look at it so I thought we would end with that with a form of humor which George Harrison loved whether it was wick dark humor of Monty Python or just silly sit on my face <laughs> and and to have his legacy and his son Danny Harrison which is extraordinary and to be able to continue to listen to these records all things must pass uh, his last album was I believe um, brainwashed and then that one song oh he had said you know cloud nine in the 80s and he had that song I've got my mind set on you which is such a marvelous music video that only George Harrison uh, could could give us the quirkiness of it. And so this has been the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. I was raised on the Beatles, and I, I, I would always wonder why certain people liked George. And then I came to understand, and I, and I remember listening to All Things Must Pass, Beware of Darkness, which is such a beautiful song. Um, what is life? Wawa. Wawa is one of my favorites because it's that is such a sonic whirlwind. But if you're a Beatles fan, if you're a George Harrison fan, if you're a fan of the Monty Python or Time Bandits films, then thank you for joining me tonight, Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Wherever you are, George Harrison, thank you. Harry Krishna. Thank you.